This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Casino Royale, starring Daniel Craig, Eva Green, and Mads Mikkelsen. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we are starting our month of Alfred Hitchcock, the thing Dana has been quite literally begging me all season to do with the U.S. version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, starring James Stewart and Doris Day. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? The links are available in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there, so check them out. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. So, Dad, Casino Royale, let's start here. We last week talked about who the best Bonds were, but I don't know if we've talked about the context of the Daniel Craig era. And part of the reason of doing the movies that we have for the past couple of weeks is leading up to his final entry into the franchise, No Time to Die. So... Let's flash back to about 2006, and we were coming off of what I think to be one of the worst Bond films yet, Die Another Day, that finished out the Pierce Brosnan era, and really is kind of schlocky. It's well over the top. You have a North Korean prince somehow becoming a British white aristocrat through plastic surgery as the main villain, and... It's a, just a terrible movie overall. <laughs> the franchise yes. kind of needed to be reinvented. Enter Daniel Craig. And I don't know if you remember a whole lot about these movies about that period of time. This was when I was uh, switching schools and in going into public school right about that time. But I'll ask this question. Did Daniel Craig save the James Bond franchise? Of course he did. I mean, what had happened is, is Albert Broccoli had taken over uh, and had been the primary driver of the Bond franchise as the producer for a number of years. He had been one of the co-producers from the originals. And what ended up happening is, is he, he kind of had reached a point age-wise and health-wise that he could no longer do it. So his two kids ended up taking it over. And they decided to reboot and come up with basically an entirely modernized version of the originals. So, of course, they're going to start out with the first book, which should have been the first film, but they couldn't obtain the movie rights to it, Casino Royale. And it started Bond on the journey that most of us had already seen through all the other films, but he had to develop as a character all over again within the context of modern culture primarily because it had spun out of control from where it was. It almost had become cartoonish, and 
uh, unwatchable. I mean, you know, the grit, the, the things that made it so impactful for me as a young man by the time the uh, Timothy Dalton and uh, Pierce Brosnan films came out, the scripts were weak. The concepts were even weaker. The overall storyline had lost trajectory and had no idea where it was trying to go. And the whole thing was disconjointed. So I don't think it was just Daniel Craig who brought back a grittiness and a... um, I don't know if the... I don't know if there were grittiness ever in the franchise up to that point. Uh, Bond was gritty uh, when it was Connery. Eh, I would argue that it was actually more smooth. He very seldom was ever ruffled. His hair was never out of place, although that's because it was a toupee. Only through a couple of the movies. The first two, I think he did with most of his own hair. (laughs) Okay. Even so. But there was a, a sophistication, a wordiness. He wasn't in a lot of physical altercations in the way that Daniel Craig is. He was not chasing a down a ton of bad guys on foot that he had to do a, a gross amount of stunts, partially due to what the, the constraints of the character and action movies were in the 60s. Yeah. But you weren't going to get the parkour scene that we start out in Casino Royale with. Yeah. Well, I understand your point, but it brought it back. I mean, you couldn't, Sean Connery's performance could not be done in 2006 and convey the same feeling that Connery did in 1962. Certainly not. I would definitely argue that Craig and the modern James Bond, or at least the Craig era of Bond, is very much a reflection of a lot of the movies around it. So I know there were a lot of comparisons, particularly his second turn in Quantum of Solace to being somewhat of a Jason Bourne-like movie. There are a lot of hand-to-hand combat sequences and other things that are reflective of that. But also, think about it in this light. I look at the Bond franchise as a slightly larger version of what happened to like the Batman franchise over a long period of time. It was stuck in animation. It was, I guess, reflective of the sixties. And I I would say similarly, if you're going to go like for like Roger Moore is comparative to the Adam West Batman, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan was comparable to the Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher Batmans of the nineties. What you eventually got was Christopher Nolan, Batman, and you've got the Daniel Craig era of James Bond. A more vulnerable, one who thinks and grapples with his decisions, one who is a little bit more impulsive, one who's actually affected by the people that he kills and the women that he sleeps with. That's where I think this starts to separate out as a franchise, that you can be more connected to the character of Bond as opposed to the pinnacle of what you wish every man could be. Okay, I understand your point. There's a certain, like I said, there's a certain aspect of it that reflects the times, and it has to be, he had to be more than what was common in order to be Bond in 2006. In 1962, Connery's performance was beyond what was normal in movies at that time. And so, therefore, it's the same exponential increase in 
either grit, violence. Bond is a very manly character as far as what men are normally portrayed. There's a certain level of testosterone drivenness about it, almost to the point of being extreme. And that difference existed in 1962, which separated Connery from the pack. And it had to be more so for Daniel Craig to separate himself in 2006 from the pack. I look at it, let's take another character and make it the like for like. The way that Sherlock Holmes was portrayed in the 50s, 60s, even 70s, then the difference with the television series that you and I used to watch with Jeremy Brett in the 80s and 90s, then even to the, I guess, recent or semi-recent Guy Ritchie movies with Robert Downey or the Benedict Cumberbatch series by the BBC. He's slowly evolved as a more modernized character that has uh, a lot more flaws and we see a lot deeper inside the character. Bond of Sean Connery was there to look good, be an action movie star, and was kind of two-dimensional. Now we've gotten to the point where we've kind of gotten that extra third dimension, and I think Craig was the perfect casting for what we needed in order to save the franchise, because I really think, had they gotten this wrong, that we probably would not have James Bond. Had we had another couple of flops, it's quite possible that the franchise, they wouldn't even have continued. There's so many franchises that existed, serial movies, that just wore out. The Thin Man, even Sherlock Holmes in the movie era, with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. Because they ran out, because their day as how the characters were performed and portrayed uh, fit within a social norm. And when society changed, they didn't, and so they died out. And I think that's exactly the point. Society had changed significantly, and if uh, they didn't change the franchise, it would have just become an antiquated thing, and you could watch the old films and enjoy them, but there wouldn't be more recent releases. And that's why I'm curious for whatever era we get next, because the character is going to need to evolve with whomever the next casting is. I think we've seen that a lot where people get excited. I know with the Sony leak, probably about five, six years ago, we had a rumored casting of Idris Elba potentially being stepping into the role as the Black Bond. But there have been talks for a while of a diversity casting or maybe even a female version of James Bond coming to be the central figure. That James Bond, it, like 007, is just a nickname or a moniker as opposed to somebody's actual name. And so that does open up the character, but I, I'm curious to see what happens next, especially given that we've been waiting six years for this movie, and particularly two, almost two, where it's been sitting in limbo. So I hope it doesn't turn into Doctor Who, where the character just evolves and just kind of like goes through a time machine and becomes somebody completely different. I hope they build on it at this point instead of going completely revolutionary. Well, one of the, the castings I thought would have been absolutely excellent for a new Bond uh, is currently in another franchise that he just had a movie a few months ago, Snake Eyes, and that's Henry Golding. I think he would have been a perfect uh, substitute as Bond, and that would have been completely different from 
anything else we had been rumored or suggested up to this point. But I know that they don't evolve overnight. And there are elements of the Bond character from even the Pierce Brosnan era that are apparent in the Daniel Craig era, but it does mark somewhat of a stark difference to how things were done, how they were shot. And I do like that they brought in more serious level people and directors to make this less of a comedic thing and less of a schlocky action movie as they have taken some of the material seriously especially with a film I know we'll eventually get to, Skyfall. I think that marks a stark difference in really revolutionizing the need for the James Bond character in the modern day. Because I I think it speaks directly to why, I guess, spies, espionage is more important than ever. So let's take it back then again to 2006. What is your relationship to this movie? Oh... 2006, I do not believe I went and saw the movie at the theater. I'm pretty sure you did not. I'm pretty sure that it was several years after that because you were not enamored with the Bond franchise as a whole post-Connery. I had you sit down and watch, I think, this and Quantum of Solace at some point. I think I had both the DVDs at, at one time or another. I think you're right. I mean, I had seen most of the Roger Moore Bond films in the theater, and uh, by the time Timothy Dalton came, I know I'd rented them and found them to be barely worth the allotted time to watch. I thought, you know, I was a little hopeful once um, Pierce Brosnan took over that it would be better, but I'm going, ugh, just, no, I don't like the scripts, I don't like the direction this is going. And I watched it, I know, and I just kind of like, ugh. I don't know if they have any clue what they're trying to do. I, um, at that time, saw an article that had been written, and I want to say, I cannot remember if it was Roger Ebert or if it was Richard Roper or A.O. Scott. One of the three wrote an article in that I read that indicated that Bond should just be left as a period piece. All stories should be based in the 60s so that they're basically the concept of uh, the world as it existed at that time, because that's the only way Bond made any sense, that there was no way you could translate Bond into modern times and make it worthwhile watching, make it appealable. And I think that's where I was in 2006. I just kind of like, there's so many other things I have in my life and so many other things I'm trying to do. I don't know if I know if I need to run out and watch this. Yeah, I do remember... 2006, I had mentioned on the podcast when we did our Goldfinger episode that I had a friend, well, I had a few friends, but one particular that was a huge Bond fan, and he and I had talked about this a lot. I think we went and saw this and Quantum of Solace together, and it was somewhat of an experience because we'd been talking up going into this. I even distinctly remember him saying, yeah, the last line of the film is going to be Bond, James Bond, and everybody roared in the premiere. So we're expecting this thing to be like really good. And this is kind of in that really heyday of when you and I used to occasionally watch like World Series of Poker or the World Poker Tour and the big poker boom post rounders that 2000 and or excuse me, 1998 to like 2008 era of like peak poker for everybody uh, going on at that point. And 
I just remember that from about the parkour scene through the card playing and then to the final sequence, I just loved everything about this movie. And honestly, I've come to love it even more the more often I've seen it. I remember being very fond of it in theaters, but I've grown an even stronger appreciation over time. And personally, I probably like Casino Royale more than Skyfall. So uh, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. After James Bond, Daniel Craig, gains promotion to 00 status by killing two targets, he is soon on the trail of Le Chief, Mads Mikkelsen, a private banker to the underground world. Le Chief uses his client's money to buy options on an aerospace manufacturer, knowing that the manufacturer would be the target of an arranged terrorist attack. However, the attack is thwarted by Bond, and Lashiv must organize a high-stakes poker tournament to raise the money to pay back his clients. Bond is entered into the game, aided by Vesper Lind, Ava Green, a treasury agent watching Bond stake, and Renee Mathis, Giancarlo Gianni. Bond soon goes all in and finds that the stakes to the game are just on the table. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Daniel Craig as James Bond. Eva Green as Vesper Lind, or it could be Ava, either way. Mads Mikkelsen as Le Chief. Giancarlo Giannini as Rene Mathis. Katerina Marino as Solange Dimitrios. Simon Abkarian as Alex Dimitrios. Isaac de Bancole as Stephen Obano. Jesper Christensen as Mr. White. Ivana Milicevic as Valenka. Sebastian Foucan as Malaka, Jeffrey Wright as Felix Leiter, and Judy Dench as M. Recognition for this movie, it was it made a slew of top ten movies of the year lists for 2006, including Entertainment Weekly, Salon, Empire, and multiple people at the New York Times, Washington Post, and Chicago Tribune. In 2008, Entertainment Weekly named Casino Royale the 19th best film of the past 25 years. Roger Moore wrote, quote, Daniel Craig impressed me so greatly in his debut outing, Casino Royale, by introducing a more gritty, unrefined edge to the character that I thought Sean might just have to move over, meaning Sean Connery. Craig's interpretation was like nothing we'd seen on screen before. Jimmy Bond was earning his stripes and making mistakes. It was intriguing to see him being castigated by M, just like a naughty schoolboy would be by his headmaster. The script showed him as a vulnerable, troubled, and flawed character. Quite the opposite to my Bond. Craig was, and is, very much the Bond Ian Fleming had described in the books, a ruthless killing machine. It was a Bond that the public wanted, end quote. So impressed was Moore that he chose to buy the DVD. Raymond Benson, the author of nine Bond novels, called Casino Royale a perfect Bond film. Finally, it has been widely ranked inside the top five of Bond films of all time, including by Rotten Tomatoes, Newsweek, Reader's Digest, and Screen Rant. Did you know? Daniel Craig said he was shopping for groceries when he got the call from producer Barbara Broccoli that he had won the James Bond role. She apparently told him, over to you, kiddo. Craig left the groceries behind and celebrated with martinis, shaken, not stirred. Did you know? Daniel Craig initially rejected the part of James Bond as he felt that the series had settled into a standard formula. He changed his mind, however, when he read the finished script. Did you know? In the shower scene, Vesper, Ava Green, was originally scripted to be wearing nothing but her underwear. Daniel Craig argued that Vesper would not have stopped to take her clothes off, and the scene was changed. 
Did you know? The car barrel roll stunt by the Aston Martin DBS broke the world record for the most barrel rolls assisted by a cannon. Originally, the racing specifications of the DBS meant that a standard ramp would not be sufficient to get the car to roll, so the special effects team were called in to install an air-powered cannon behind the driver's seat. This allowed the car to complete seven full rolls. The stunt was officially entered in the Guinness Book of World Records on November 5th, 2006. Did you know? In one afternoon's shooting, three Aston Martin DB9 cars, valued at $300,000 each, were destroyed for the car rolled sequence. Did you know? Daniel Craig became the first actor to be nominated for a BAFTA award for playing James Bond. Did you know? Much was made at this movie's release about Daniel Craig's buff body. Being in such prime condition was not new to Craig, as at one point he had been a semi-professional rugby player. Did you know? According to Daniel Craig, the only CGI in this movie was to erase safety wires in a lot of the stunt sequences and to integrate the models for the sinking palazzo into the real Venetian location. Did you know? Producers Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson didn't secure the rights to Casino Royale until 2000 when Sony exchanged them for MGM's rights to Spider-Man. Did you know? Daniel Craig lost his two front teeth while filming a fight scene in Prague the first action seemed to be shot, and his dentist had to fly from London to replace them. All right, so Dad, what is this movie about? It's a spy thriller. It is pure and simple. It is about it is about fantasy. It is about being ex- or the exotic world of of a spy and the life they lead. If I were to describe this to anyone, because I. I know that that would be a general description of just Bond purely, but if I'm talking about this specific movie, I would go in the direction, after Bond interrupts a stock manipulation, MI6 tries to bankrupt a criminal syndicate by beating their financier at a high-stakes poker game. I think it's kind of short and to the point and kind of gets at what the, the true essence of the movie is. So best performer for you then. Any debate on Daniel Craig? No, there's no debate. I don't think there really needs to be one. We kind of mentioned it already. He brought a new essence to the movie. Again, his... I know that they were talking about the the buffness, and I mentioned it in the Did You Know section, but it wasn't so much that he looked built. It was the presence of such a large and physically large person. And the fighting sequences, because there's a lot of hand-to-hand combat within the course of this movie. You talk about the stairwell fight, or you talk about the bathroom scene for the gun barrel shot at the beginning of the movie. You talk about even uh, the embassy shooting. There's a bit of uh, some physicality to that. And just his overall nature of being really gritty and down-to-earth in a lot of the action sequences. I think part of his physicality had a a major hand in marking where he was different from previous Bonds. I think going back to this, and you look back at the original concept of Bond by Ian Fleming, and the uh, agents that Fleming wrote were a composite of agents he knew while he served in British intelligence during World War II. And there's a strong correlation between those people who became agents for uh, the British government during that time and Batman. It's the same concept, which is child, orphaned, 
and spends most of his life then trying to uh, avenge his parents' death, they, the British government would only go after a, uh, elite, well-educated, moneyed people to do the jobs that James Bond did because they had not only the education and the uh, necessary intelligence to do them, they had the financial means of doing it outside of what normal government would. And so I found that the original Bond brings a certain element of where, you know, it's very similar to Bruce Wayne and Batman. And I, I always wondered about the or the consistency between those two stories, if one is kind of related to the other. Craig brings that back into a more generalized. I mean, Conrad kind of states it, but Craig makes it clear. He is alone in the world. He is unloved. He has nobody. And so this is what he has. And he serves about or goes about serving Britain to fulfill a mission or an obligation, knowing that the reason he can do it is because he has no ties to anyone. He can be reckless. He can be ruthless. It doesn't matter. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I don't remember up until the Craig era that they really ever mentioned that he's an orphan. And I think in at least three different uh, movies of the four that we've gotten so far, that being Casino Royale, Skyfall, and Spectre, it's a major part of the storyline. There's that whole train sequence and the exchange between him and Vesper where they're talking about orphans and their backgrounds and kind of getting some character profile that we don't get in a lot of the other movies. That's kind of a captivating scene. But Skyfall has him returning to Scotland and his ancestral home. And then Spectre, how he grew up in the absence of his parents after the ski accident that claimed their lives. So it's an interesting part of this version of Bond that we get that side of the character that's never explored up until this era. I think there's a strong sense of that in the world. People who either had their parents die young or their parents disappear, a large portion of their personality and their makeup is made by absence of certain role models in their lives where they feel that they have to overcome that or are trying to justify a missing aspect of their childhood. You could be very right on that one. I just, I really have always been drawn to, not just in a charismatic way, but in, I guess, an emotional place to the Craig Bond by comparison to the other ones. I really like and admire uh, the Connery Bond, but I don't feel the same pain or mission or have, have the same problems that the Connery Bond does. I can definitely relate to a lot of the same characteristics or how I might feel if I put myself in his shoes of the Craig Bond. And I think that is a major difference when you compare eras. I know we've kind of beat that to death so far, but I, I really think that is the major turning point. So best secondary performer. Uh, I have Ava Green. And in large part because I remember the firestorm that took place when they named her as the actress in this. Back in 2006, this was common because it was a big uproar because they accused her of being in the air, being a softcore porn star. And how dare this individual be 
made the uh, love interest to be the Bond girl. Obviously, they overblew that, and uh, I think her performance was well done, and I think she did a pretty, or a, not a pretty good job, a good job of exhibiting both diffidence towards Bond and then ultimately compassion and understanding of Bond. She has a lot of the tropes, at least the way the character is written, of what a romantic comedy is. There's somewhat of a pride and prejudice thing going on where early on in the film, they're kind of opposites. They're very prickly. They're hardened towards each other. But as they go through the circumstances of the poker game and then further on past that, that you kind of warm to each other. And in a way, she has a softening ability. I've always found her to be one of the sexiest Bond girls. There's just an elegance but a strength and powerfulness that I've always found attractive about this particular performance. And I don't know what it is, but I think she would top my list. That's why I ended up going with her for my most charismatic. Uh, I went with Daniel Craig, simply because Daniel Craig established himself as what he really is, which is a movie star. And I know that we went and saw Knives Out, and actually, uh, I'm hoping in another few years we can potentially put that on our list. I really, his uh, southern accent was a little... Uh, <laughs> Over the top? Yeah, a little left a little to be desired, but I'm looking forward to the series of these films that he's apparently going to do. Because um, I think they were fun and they showed his ability to have certain levels of range. And uh, I thought uh, he... Uh, showed himself to be the movie star that he is. Yeah, I'd be curious to see where that franchise goes as well, because I know they have a second and third film contracted to, I guess it's Netflix at this point, that threw a ton of money at those movies to get the rights to two and three. So they're very fun, they're enjoyable. I just rewatched Knives Out, and I'm curious how the rest of it turns out, because moving on past Bond, like after each of these actors retires from the role... They really don't do anything else. Pierce Brosnan hasn't really appeared in much. Timothy Dalton's MIA. Basically, these guys pop up only in the point where a new movie comes out and they have to comment on it. So I'd really like to see, because I do agree with you, that Daniel Craig is a good action star. Although I understand if he doesn't want to do a lot of action movies anymore, given the amount of injuries he's sustained from the Bond films. But he is charismatic. He's just a... I don't know. He's a lovable guy that I enjoy seeing in movies. But yes, my- well, I, I will dispute your comments at least as far as Sean Connery because he did win an Academy Award. Okay, after you're Bond. you're right. I'm I'm sorry, but basically outside of Sean Connery, although to be fair, he won for a movie that was not one of his best. But then again, you could say that a lot of people's Oscars. So what movie do you uh, perceive as being, what did he win? I thought he was much better in Finding Forrester. I thought he was much better in Hunt for Red October. He won it for... The Untouchables. Yes. He won it for Untouchables. I thought his portrayal made the film. I thought Kevin Costner's portrayal was a little wooden. I didn't like the film for the most part anyway, so... I, I didn't really care, but I, I think if I remember right, I think it was Brian De Palma directed it. Could be with Brian De Palma's characteristic having slow motion of a baby carriage going down a 
<laughs> Flight of Stairs. But I thought he made the film, which is predominantly why he won the Academy Award for it. Well, and it was somewhat of a makeup by that point. But regardless of that, and I'll grant you that, uh, we didn't get to my best secondary performance. I really love Mads Mikkelsen. I know you and I really liked the movie from this last year with him, the the Danish film. Uh, I think it was Another Round is the name. Yes. And he has been in a lot of different things. I know that I never watched the show, but the TV series Hannibal was a favorite of a lot of people. It got picked up multiple times and people tried to resurrect it because he just has an ability to be a really good bad guy. And yet he can also play softer sides. I think he has an incredible range and I just like seeing him pop up and stuff. So anytime he's in a movie, it sells for me. And I also love the fact that I know this is based off of the book. So part of that is credit to the the book as opposed to the screenplay itself. But I like that we had such low stakes, especially in the Connery era. The villainous plots are not to blow up the world. We get in Casino Royale, he needs to win a poker game in order to stop international ta- or funding of terrorism. In Quantum of Solace, he needs to stop a guy who is trying to buy up the entire water supply of Bolivia. In Skyfall, he's trying to stop a digital terrorist from basically killing his boss. And in Spectre, that's where it goes a little bit farther, and they're basically trying to destroy all of MI6 within the British government itself. I don't know what No Time to Die is going to have, but the stakes are much lower for some of these than the often criticized megalomaniac plots of some of the (laughs) late-era Roger Moore films that I criticized last week. So just from that standpoint, I like that this is a smaller movie. It has lower stakes that, yes, it's it's really Bond as the adversary against Le and you get that back and forth, particularly at the poker table, where you very rarely, other than the villainous monologue where Bond will have dinner with the villain in some unexplicable way and he'll explain his entire plot to him, and that's satirized by the Austin Powers films, where you have to tell you them your whole evil plan before you will eventually not shoot them, but try and come up with some diabolical way to kill them, that this was more grounded and understood that if we were going to make a shift on just the character, we also had to make a shift on the villains. And I think this is actually one of the stronger villains in a series that has had an occasionally good villain, but hasn't had a great villain since probably the 70s, if you ask me. Somehow we've gotten this misconception that a villain is just pure evil. A villain can be much less than that and still be a villain? Sure. I think there are much more complex versions of that. I I think there is much more to antagonism than that. But usually we get these very wooden one or two dimensional villains that we don't get an explanation for why they have desires or this need for anything. And realistically, his plot point is very simple. He's the financier and he's going to die at the hands of all of these criminals that he's financing for if he doesn't recover all of their money. that That's a very simple desire, but he is somewhat ruthless. And I really, if you pick a particular scene where they are facing off and you can really tell the, the toying nature that you wouldn't get in any other Bond film to that point, it's the 
you're going to die scratching my balls. <laughs> the torture uh, scene on the boat. Yeah. So with that, let's actually move into best scenes then. What do you have as your first nominee? Chase scene leading to the uh, airliner. I just think You're that's... going way deep. I had like three or four before that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have multiple, but I'm just that you asked for one. I'm giving you the one that I thought of right off the bat, and that was uh, an excellent scene as far as I'm concerned. Um, It was uh, highly entertaining. It was uh, well done, and uh, I didn't find too many flaws with it. So we're coming off of a movie last week live and let die where we had a car chase we had an airplane chase we had a a car versus a bus chase and we had a boat chase in this movie we have several chases but if you think about it we have the parkour chase which i'm going to nominate here at through all the construction zones and in madagascar you have the chase on foot basically through the airport and you have the chase on foot through venice So all of that stuff is using the physicality of Bond in a completely different setting. And for this being his first entry into this, for a character known for all of its car chases and vehicle chases and all these extraordinary things, to have all of your chase sequences basically on foot, I think was an unusual but successful stroke in this particular movie. My next scene was uh, his meeting after... uh the initial kills with M kind of where he, she excoriated him about his uh, behavior, what he would do, what he wouldn't do uh, all of that. Again, it humanized bond showing that this is a character that uh, is evolving. Is this the one in M's apartment or is this the one in, I guess, what would it be? Jamaica or the Bahamas? Excuse me. The first one with Jamaica, yes, where they're meeting and she's going through this. The one in her apartment would be another one that would be similar where she's basically dressing him down for utilizing his skills, ability, and his know-how in general to find her and be able to enter uh, her apartment, which only seemed to unnerve M to some degree because I think she realized at that point if Bond could do it, anybody could. Oh, and it had an interesting tidbit to that whole thing. (laughs) I never thought M stood for utter one more word and I'll have you killed or something. I can't remember the exact thing, so I'm paraphrasing. But to give that level of extra detail for somebody that has basically been the life of M, you pop up at the beginning of the film, give Bond his file scene, and then move on. And that's your only work in the movie. Where I think she's more critical to the course of several of the the Craig era movies. Yes. Even the Bond, or excuse me, the M that replaces her for Spectre is seen throughout the course of the movie as opposed to just being in a scene at the beginning and then we let him go. Uh, the next one I had down, so I also had the opening in addition to the construction site scene. I just loved the way that we were much more creative with how we did the gun barrel. And that's been a staple of the Craig era that we haven't just relied on 
the old trope of him walking out, doing the gun barrel shot, and then we go into the like the title sequence or the first scene or something else, that we actually used it as part of the course of introducing the movie. It also gives us our first insight into Bond's first two kills. And in a way, by making him a younger, less polished agent who's kind of learning on the fly in, in a couple of ways, they're introducing a different version of Bond, and that's clearly debuted in how you've now changed how the gun barrel is usually given in sequence. As opposed to being formulaic, we're going to change it and make it just slightly different. And that small variation goes a very long way, especially if you're a fan of the franchise. My next scene is um, actually goes earlier, which is the entire chase scene of, and I am having a hard time, Malteca? Huh? Where he's chasing the, the, the guy through into the embassy and ultimately kills him there. That's in Madagascar. Yeah, but the name of the character. Okay. I believe is Malteca. That's what I wrote down. I have Malacca. Malacca? Okay. That was how I introduced it in the cast. Uh, All right, so my mistake. The chasing of Malacca that's in Madagascar. Oh, the construction site. I had yes, nominated that, that already, but go ahead. Yeah, I know. And then uh, I, I, I do want to point out just the sheer the, the method of death uh, was interesting itself. I also have, and I separated this from the general poker scene, is the poisoning scene. Sure. Because uh, that was pretty intense. I think Craig played that very well. I don't know how he managed. Uh, that would have taken a large amount of energy to portray somebody in that state uh, and having to go through what he did in order to survive. And then just the sheer, you know, just because of the fact that there's uh, a lack, there's not a complete divorce of whimsicalness or of subtlety. I mean, it is all, after all, a Britishly based thing, which is the, the art of the understatement is where he comes back and kind of like, eh, whatever, when he's back at the poker table. Well, certainly you can't ever let him see you sweat. But I think the biggest takeaway that I have from the poisoning scene, James Bond dies on camera. Yeah. Quite literally, he's basically dead and Eva Green finds him in the car and like rescues him. This isn't some whimsical thing where he crosses a lake of alligators on their backs or uses some weird gadget to get out of whatever situation he's in. No, he quite literally dies right before our eyes and is only saved by pure luck. And I think that's a, a stark difference, again, in drawing between previous eras and what we have here. Yeah. Next one I had down then was... The hand-to-hand combat with the African warlord in the stairwell, the Craig-era Bond, they have some great set pieces. And some of the hand-to-hand combat fights, whether that be on top of trains or whatever through the course of all of these movies, are just extraordinary. And I thought this was another great entry because, realistically, Bond had made some fights, but then he does these like pseudo-karate chops or whatever, and we get these kind of moments of levity as opposed to him being a true badass action star that can fight his way out of situation. So we hadn't seen that a lot since maybe the fight in Goldfinger with Oddjob and Sean Connery in the uh, Gold Depository, where you had a really true hand-to-hand combat scene for a while. 
You mean Fort Knox? Is it not a gold depository? I guess. So I, I really appreciated the nature of that one, and he basically takes out two guys and has to do it, and he's bleeding all over and then has to clean himself up. And again, this is establishing him as a much more realistic character, one that gets his suit bloodied, that he has to literally change his shirt, uh, and it, they make a comment about it. And none of that is by accident. I think it's all established as to all of the things that he has to go through just to be him. When I saw that scene again, and I had watching it for uh, the thing, it, it brought back a flash of a film from the, I can't remember if it was the late 50s, early 60s. It was an Academy Award winner, which was The Hustler. And Jackie Gleason is in combat over a pool table with Paul Newman. Gleason playing Minnesota Fats who's a pool hustler. And in the middle of the game, when Paul Newman is completely worn out, Gleason goes into the bathroom, he comes out, and he's fresh as a cucumber and uh, starts going again. And it completely psychs out Paul Newman, which Newman then points out, well, if you go in the bathroom, you put some water on your face, you change shirts, and you give the appearance of nothing bothering you or phasing you. And it puts whoever you're playing at at, uh, a disadvantage. And I thought of that. I'm going, you know, here's Bond who's fighting everybody, who's doing everything. And then he just puts on a clean shirt. He comes out and everybody's looking like, oh my God, you should be dead. And it psychologically almost puts them at a, well, not almost, puts them at a disadvantage. It's an interesting comparison. It is a film we will eventually address. Uh, Did you have another one? Well, the actual poker playing itself is uh, phenomenal. I wish we could have gotten a little bit more mundane. To be fair, and I also had this as a nominee, but realistically, the hands that they're giving and the one he eventually wins on is like a 300 million to one hand. I mean, it's so utterly ridiculous to have a, a inside straight made by like three cards like that, in addition to having, what is it, like four of a kind, a full house, and something else. I mean, it's just utterly ridiculous. <laughs> that being said, it does create a significant amount of suspense to that particular point in the movie, and it is enjoyable and rewatchable, even for as over the top as it is. Let's just say most poker hands are one with like three of a kind or a pair. Yes. I had, I kind of already mentioned it, but the torture sequence, again, not something else that we'd really seen the level of physical violence to Bond. We've seen it occasionally, uh, but most of the time Bond is just strapped to a table with somebody trying to shoot a laser at his junk, as opposed to getting actually hit in the balls. And it is a good scene because of how you feel, especially as a man, how incredibly painful that must be. And his just muffled like shrieks of pain for a guy that's in that level of shape. And to be fair, that's one of two shirtless scenes in this movie where I had to imagine most women were swooning. But the the gross amount of just anger, rage, pain that you could see on his face, I thought was uh, an amazing piece of this movie. Anything else for you? 
the the collapsing building in Venice. Yeah, that was the last one I head down to. It's a great set piece to finish off the movie, and especially given where we had gone up to that point, I don't know the first time I watched it that I was expecting that kind of twist, but it really added a different layer to the movie where you felt like you were kind of coming down after Mickelson is killed. Spoiler alert. But you get this ramp back up for one last little thing, and that's where you get the ending sequence. Well, it meant a little bit more to me because in 2008, I actually was able or had the privilege of being in Venice and seeing the buildings and watching that again. It just had so much impact because you realize how fragile everything is in that city. It doesn't take much for something like that to have happened. Yeah, I'm sure not. Uh, So favorite scene? The poker. For me, it's the construction site chase. We had not gotten that level of a physical chase scene up to that point, and I think it's one of the most rewatchable scenes of Bond, period. So him chasing him through all of the construction site stuff is just, I I could watch it almost on a loop with how great a level of set piece that all goes through. Most indelible moment. (sighs) Well, to me, it's the one that I always remember. And it's the death scene, the poisoning. That's the one that I always take out of this because that's the one scene that just has so much impact on me. And I'm aware of the whole concept of digitalis and and that is being a po- or a form of poisoning and all this stuff. So that just uh, was what I remembered. The first thing that came to my mind when thinking about this, it's always going to be that last poker hand because of how ridiculous it is. All right, we'll take a quick break and we will be right back. All right, welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Uh, Dad, I don't think we're going to have any memoriam this week. We are pre-recording this episode. We will be giving everybody, when we get back from vacation, a rather extended in memoriam that I'm sure we're going to have for, what, about a month or so? But let's go into the Stanley rubric then. Or excuse me. Quotes. Yes, best funniest lines. Uh, what's your first nominee? I'm sorry, that last hand nearly killed me. Am I going to have a problem with you, Mr. Bond? Don't worry, you're not my type. Smart, single. M. Christ, I miss the Cold War. Bond, how about a drink at my place? That would really send him over the edge. I'm afraid I'm not that cruel. Or perhaps you're just out of practice. There are so many great like Bond quips in this one. I, I think he's much, much more suave than he has been in some of the other movies where it gets kind of cheesy. Bond, so you want me to be half monk, half hitman? I can't resist waking you. Every time I do, you look at me as if you haven't seen me in years. It makes me feel reborn. If you'd just been born, wouldn't you be naked? You have me there. You can have me anywhere. Cause after I slaughter you and your little girlfriend, your people will still welcome me with open arms because they need me, because they need to know what I know. You know, James, I just want you to know that if all that was left of you was your smile and your little finger, you'd still be more of a man than anyone I'd ever met. That's because you know what I can do with my little finger. I have no idea, but you're aching to find out. Vodka Martini. Shaken or stirred? Do I look like I give a damn? It doesn't bother you, killing all those people? Well, I wouldn't be very good at my job if it did. 
There's not enough room in this elevator for Mia and your ego. Do you have any more? Because I'm out. I'm done. Alright, let's move to the Stanley rubric then. This was a top four grossing movie of the franchise, although not best adjusted for inflation. And I do think that this is a step away from the other eras of Bond, where this was less about megalomaniacs and world destruction. Also, the first time Bond's action is defined by a bigger physical presence, I think it established that the Bond series could be relevant post-Cold War, which we hadn't really seen, and for that matter, post-Ian Fleming novels, where most of the other movies hadn't been successful to this point. I know this is technically a return to one of the novels, but set up the Craig era where we've had a little bit more success. So I went with a seven on Legacy. I think that the critic reviews were relatively good uh, at that point. I'll give that about a three and a half. And I think the audience reception was warm given how the the financial aspect of it was. I don't think this has the relative success of something like Skyfall that kind of became somewhat of a phenomenon to itself. But I'll go with a three and a half on that. Adds up to my seven. I went with an eight. I gave four for each. I think it started a buzz among the public. The bond was back. That it was something worth going to. That it was an event that you wanted to be part of. And for critics, I think it brought back Bond as being something more than this formulaic trite. The only problem I would have with you giving a score higher than myself is I was clamoring for this. I went and saw it in theaters, and I had to physically show you the movie in order to get you to watch it. Otherwise, you're like, eh, not really. (laughs) Okay, whatever. So I was wrong originally. So that's a 7.5 average between us, though. Okay, isn't it ultimately the fact that I'm growing as a as an individual because I'm experiencing films that I never wanted to really watch when they were released? I guess, but I don't know if that has any reflection within the Stanley rubric on the movie itself. Well, I get to look back and, I mean, I'm so counterculture as it is. You know, the more people seem to talk up something, the more I'm uh, disinterested. So we won't even mention a uh, uh, a certain group of blue people. Avatar? Yeah. We will be covering that at some point, and you will have to watch it. Uh, great. I'm so excited. Maybe I should put that early next year for you. Yeah, I can hardly wait. Impact Significance. Again, good grossing movie, but was followed up by an average or so sequel, and I think it kind of took the sting out of it a little bit. It had a lot of momentum coming out of this movie, and even though the true Bond fans like myself enjoyed Quantum of Solace, it was far from a perfect film, and it was paling in comparison to the heights of Casino Royale at times. I think it hit some of the same notes. It had a lot of the great same uh, action pieces. And the only reason I mention it is is because it appears within that five-year window after 2006, whereas Skyfall comes after that. Had Skyfall fallen within that five-year range, I might have given it extra points. And I know we're supposed to differentiate it based on the movie itself. But I think when you're talking about a franchise like this, each movie kind of successively builds on the other. And Quantum of Solace is the first direct sequel to Casino Royale or any Bond movie for that matter. And I think 
they are all interrelated. Skyfall is related to Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, and Spectre ties the whole thing together up to that point. Apparently, No Time to Die has an ability to go back across all of the other films up to that point as well. You just didn't have the same tie-ins that you did every other Bond film to this point. So, impact-wise on the franchise, I think it really resurrected it. We said it, it saved basically what could have been a dying franchise that nobody was interested in. And now we at least have one Bond film that's grossed over a billion dollars and joined that club. It's kind of a relevant franchise again, at least for MGM, and is going to now be part of the Amazon family with that acquisition. So I'm curious to see how that goes forward, uh, if Amazon's going to have a presence. Normally, most people just leave Barbara Broccoli and Albert Wilson alone. So we'll see if there's any more meddling. I would guarantee probably not. But I gave it a six, and it's kind of a soft six. I think it's better Bond era, but that's subjective. I don't think it changed action or spy movies. In fact, I think it was influenced by other ones of the time. So I think the audience reception is good. I think the fact that a lot of people have rated this near their top five is good, but it's not one that is nearly as impactful on the same level as some of the early Bonds when it was uh, defining for the spy genre or something like Skyfall that reset the franchise in, in a whole new way for a lot of people, even that weren't fans of the franchise to begin with. Well, of course, you know, that ultimately, since this is now Bond is part of Amazon, I'm sure Bond will be flying into subspace with Jeff Bezos. You you say that in jest, and yet I think it's quite possible, given that the latest Fast movie is going into space, as well as the next Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, it, it didn't have quite the buzz that um, some of the films did, and I think it's because the Bond era had lost some of its luster, especially for groups of um, people like me who grew up with the originals. I struggled with this. I went with a 6.5 because just the fact that I know for, I know that I was not the only one of my age or ilk who kind of did pin. Oh yeah. Okay. Bonds out again. Uh, all right. Well, maybe I'll see it when it comes on TV. Well, you also have to remember in relation, we're coming off of the tail end of the Brosnan era as well as the Austin Powers movies, which were highly successful, but lampooned this whole thing. So I think there was somewhat of a tongue-in-cheek as to what the Bond franchise was, because it hadn't evolved. And so marking the stark difference in what it became in the Craig era does give it a slightly higher grade than I would have otherwise given. But I do think that, as opposed to something like Skyfall, which had much more attention around it, this was kind of a fun movie, but not something that a lot of people out of the ordinary saw if they weren't already fans of the franchise. So that's a 6.25 between us. Novelty. I think this will be a higher one for us, but I'll let you go first on this one. Okay, well, it's what what number in the series? So I had a discount. Uh, I think 21. Yeah, I had a discount it to some extent because of that. But the fact that the novelty is it redefined Bond gave it points up. So I went with a 7.5 for, for that reason. I mean, if it would have been nothing, it would have been a 5. 
but I'm giving it two and a half points up because of the redefinition of Bond. Again, I know that we recently kind of have changed a little bit or modified our stance on novelty, that if it just does something very well, it doesn't have to be completely original or groundbreaking, but I think when you get a redefinition of an era or the new evolution, I give it more points than otherwise would be. And the cinematography, the action sequences, the portrayal of Bond, the incorporation of other characters, the difference in villain, all of those things are incredibly novel to me. It's notable that we get three real foot chases. Uh, The parkour is unlike anything else in previous eras of Bond. And the airport chase feels like it was taken out of Raiders of the Lost Ark at different points. It certainly modernized the action, even if if the eventual impact was to have Quantum of Solace be negatively dinged for feeling like a Bourne movie ripoff. And I do like that, though. I, I don't mind, because I enjoyed the Bourne films as well, that it took some points from that to add into it so that it felt more modern. I also thought the Bond quips for the first time in the franchise felt actually sexy, such as the little finger line that I personally believe is one of the best of the franchise, instead of the awkward or the awkwardly funny that we constantly get for probably about 20 to 30 years. It's a notable entry in the franchise for its cinematography, stunting, background engagement, and modern take. It has also got one of the other distinct characteristics that separates it going forward for the Craig era that seems to be mentioned in every review. The vulnerable Bond. I don't think we've ever had a Bond that wore so many emotions on his sleeve from fear to love to anger to betrayal. We get it all in this movie and the next three after. I give it a strong 8.5 for kind of reinventing the character in the franchise. So that is a 8 between us. Made the math pretty easy on me so far, but usually it's a lot easier when it's the two of us. Yes. Uh, Classicness. You are the king. I let you go first. Ugh. Did I do wrong? Should I go first? No. I, I This is one that I struggled with again because it took me a while to watch it. I've seen it. This was the third time I've actually seen it. It seems to get better every time I watch it. There's nothing about it that I find displeasurable. In fact, um, this is the first Bond film that I can remember where The female characters have actual chutzpah. I think the word you're looking for is agency. Yeah, where they're actually involved or where they actually have some level of, you know, they're they're not just an appendage in the film. They actually have They're not there to literally be the pinup girl. Correct. And they have some ability to, to stand on their own and to be. So to that extent, actually the classicness grows a little bit higher for me because of the redefinition of the Bond girl. So I went with an eight. Okay. So the one of the few things that sticks out to me is parkour was kind of a fad of the time when we were doing this. It was a lot of YouTube videos. And so for some of the sequences, it works well. And I don't think the, the action set pieces have aged poorly. Just the know, the knowing style that parkour isn't like this big fad as it was in 2006, 2007, 2008. But that scene holds up really well as an action set piece and grips you almost immediately after the title card song. 
Bond still uses women as disposable in this movie, namely the Solange character, but ironically, he does get his comeuppance in this movie where the role is reversed. He doesn't finally treat someone as a disposable pleasure, a quote from the movie, and he gets burned by it because in some ways she does that to him by betraying him at the end, that she's using him for means to her own end. Again, this might be the most sexy Bond movie to me that I remember. All of the other ones take on a, a completely different meaning. I don't know if Skyfall is very sexy. It's grounded, it's gritty, but it doesn't necessarily have, other than maybe one or two instances, some of the sex appeal that uh, portions of this movie does to me. And I don't really know if there are a ton of bad notes in here. I know that a lot of people decry the Bond character for what it used to be, but this modern take and the evolution of the character particularly when it comes to women characters and having rather strong female characters as opposed to what we've had to this prior, I gave it a nine. I, I do think that it has to be given credit for being one of the more classic ones in a franchise that is not particularly classic to a lot of people. So that is an 8.5 average between us. Rewatchability, I'll make this pretty quick and painless. It may not be, I mean, it's in the running for probably my favorite Bond with Diamonds Are Forever, and so that's going to put it up pretty high on my list. This might be in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. It's definitely inside the top 20, so I'm going to give it a 9.5. I went with a 7 simply because it's it's just not something that I would normally just put on when I want to relax or whatever. Yes, I enjoyed it. Yes, I would watch it if it's available. I'm not going out of my way. To me, that's a 7. So audience score for this one, we had a 93% for Google users. We had an 89% for Rotten Tomato users for a 9.1 audience score. All added up, that gives us 47.85. And that puts it in between Goodfellas and The Bridge on the River Kwai. Okay. Personally, for me, I I think if you uh, told other people that Goodfellas and the Bridge on the River Choir were being compared to Casino Royale, some might have a conniption, but <laughs> I'm pretty comfortable with it, where that is at the moment. It may be that we may have to revisit one or two or both of those at some point in time. All right. Uh, remaining questions. <laughs> I had a few. I, I, I'm not quite sure why Ava Green decided to sacrifice herself at the yeah. end of the film. It's the only thing that doesn't make a ton of sense to me, other than they really had only contracted her for the one movie. And story-wise, they were going to move past her. But outside of that, I, I just, to sacrifice or essentially in some ways commit suicide it's never struck the right note with me. It's, it's the one nitpick that I have in what I consider to be a pretty flawless film as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Do you have anything else? No, I actually don't. Yeah, that was really my only thing too. I, I really don't have too many other parts. I mean, all of, all of the other loose threads are established or, excuse me, are answered by other movies in the series. So I'm not... I, I don't have too many loose uh, ends that I need to tie up. But uh, final thoughts for the week. Uh, release date for No Time to Die. October 6th, I believe. I think that's a Wednesday. 
and uh, we return to the country on the 2nd. Are we going to go in our respective cities and watch it, or are we going to try to make arrangements to watch it together? Well, I don't know about that following weekend, or how you'd like to do it. Excuse me, October 8th, that's the Friday. So it's out the following weekend. I mean, I could come up. I still would like to see it if it's available in the IMAX down here, but... Yeah, I know, I'd prefer that, but actually if it had come out the weekend that we were, because... Coming back? Yes. We'll come back on that Saturday. We'll arrive in the mid-afternoon. I know. So I'm not sure how I'll feel at that point in time, but... Well, uh, I guess if I have any additional thoughts other than I'm excited for this movie, I've been anxiously awaiting to see it. This thing has been bouncing back and forth. It had been rumored to be straight to streaming release at some point or somebody trying to buy the rights to it or MGM just selling it off, but they wanted like a billion dollars in order for somebody to get the streaming rights and nobody was going to pay that. So I don't know. This is something that has been pushed from December 2019 all the way till now. And I'm just, I'm ready to see the final chapter in an era that I I have personally really loved. As for you, I guess, if uh, final thoughts, we're starting Hitchcock month. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. When I was in college later on, uh, we actually had uh, Friday night films that were done in the uh, lecture hall in the science building at Boy College, which is where I did my undergraduate. And uh, one of the second Hitchcock films I'd ever seen happened to be uh, Saboteur with Robert Cummings and uh, with Norman Lloyd, who just passed away a few weeks ago at like 104 or 108 or something unbelievable number. So I've loved Hitchcock ever since, and I've made it a point of uh, studying his films and watching his films and really trying to understand the visual aspect of his films. I've, I guess, inherited some of your love of it. There are some entries that I don't think are as good as others, and he is arguably the first, let's say, commercial or mainstream director that was both an auteur as well as played to the audience. A lot of his films were, I wouldn't want to say commercially successful, but made with a commercial audience or a wide audience in mind as opposed to the art of it. There was a large separation, and I think that unfortunately was his undoing for the Academy up to that point. Yes, I'm curious as we kind of dig into some smaller movies that maybe are not on the top of everybody's list, but certainly are ones that you and I have seen multiple times where we're going to end up with on some of these scores. Cause I, I know there's probably at least a good 10 to 15 films of his that we're probably going to hit at some point during the course of the show. Most definitely. I mean, there's uh, some films that are uh, not well known that are excellent, Lifeboat, Notorious. Strangers on a Train. Strangers on a Train, Marnie, uh, which I really enjoyed. So, yeah, there's just a lot. There are the the ones. Hitchcock's ability to do comedy was very limited because he had a strange sense of humor, and it just did not go over well in the general public. 
to be fair, there are not a ton of directors who can do comedy successfully and pull off other genres either. I think there are genre level directors. Like I haven't seen Steven Spielberg do a great comedy, just pure comedy. He has some moments that are comedic. I mean, we saw that in our Jaws review not too long ago or in Jurassic Park. There are some good quippy lines, but that I think is stronger of the screenwriting and the editing as opposed to necessarily anything that he's doing. And he's certainly not creating the next Judd Apatow film. (laughs) No. It's not necessarily a muscle that comes easily to everyone, and that's why I think I appreciate comedy a little bit more than the average film fan. But uh, any other thoughts? No. All right. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else, just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we are starting our month of Alfred Hitchcock, as I just mentioned, with the U.S. version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, starring James Stewart and Doris Day. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at TJ3Duncan or at DanaWDuncan or the show on Twitter, at Gmote Podcast as well. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 